Well, hello again, my friends, and welcome back to our Midweek Bible Study Podcast. Um, it's going to be a diff- bit different this week because <clears throat> one of the questions that has been asked is, um, it's the sort of thing that re- really, it's it's a big part of why I want people to read the whole Bible in a year. Old Testament, New Testament at the same time. And I, I just realized I haven't really talked about it at all. Um, and, and so rather than talking about the sorts of things that you've been reading this week, what I'm going to do is take actually this whole week's podcast and devote it to answering this question or, or maybe this series of related questions and, and and so the question is why do I have to read the Old Testament? And I think lying underneath that question are other questions like um, isn't Jesus different from the God of the Old Testament? Why are things so different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Why do I have to pay attention to any of this? And do any of these rules that are being laid down for people in the Old Testament actually matter to Christians? Don't we just need the New Testament? People have been asking these questions for 2,000 years. So they're good questions. They're really deep questions. And so let's talk a bit about the the Old Testament and why it matters and why it's not just background noise. Um, First things first. People have been asking this question for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, the church has consistently responded that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. That you can't separate these two. And in fact, there's a word for for, uh, what happens when you do. It's called Marcionism. And it's it's been understood by the church as a heresy uh, for quite a long time. And it's a very common one. It's easy to, to read some of the stories in the Old Testament and struggle to line those stories up with the Gospels. So I get that. So there's a couple of reasons why things appear so different in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. But before we get there, let's talk for a bit about what the Old Testament is. Remember, Jesus read the Old Testament. For Jesus, the Old Testament was Scripture. When Paul, in his letter in Second Timothy, says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction, he's only talking about the Old Testament. That's it. That's the only Scripture he had. There was no New Testament. There were no written Gospels. The early Christians were not reading the Gospels. They were not reading Paul's letters as Scripture. They were reading the Old Testament and hearing stories about Jesus, and then turning to the Old Testament 
to remind, to, to sort of mine it for clues as to, as to how this all would be. But the Old Testament was their scripture. In fact, the New Testament didn't exist as we know it for 500 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It took that long for the church to get together and decide that they needed to take some of these documents that have been circulating amongst the churches and codify them into part of Scripture. Before that, you had Scripture, which was the Old Testament, and you had copies of letters and written stories and various Gospels being circulated around uh, that were useful teachings, but which were not always considered Scripture. In other words, for 500 years, give or take, the only scripture available to Christians was the Old Testament. And they read that book, and they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. Now that's, that's significant. Jesus himself quotes the Old Testament all the time. In fact, if you recall in Luke's Gospel... After his resurrection, when he's walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he uses the Old Testament, doesn't he? He explains to them, using the scriptures, all the things that had to happen, proving who the Messiah was, proving that Jesus was the Messiah, using the Old Testament. So we can't just discard this. Now, it's true that on the surface, God seems different in the New Testament than he does in the Old. But that's just on the surface. Once you dig deeper, you begin to see that God has always been the same. You will begin to see the mercy, the compassion, and the grace of God in the Old Testament. And if you pay attention, you'll begin to see the righteousness of and the justice of God in the New Testament. It's there too. In fact, the more you read them both together, the more you begin to see how they complement each other, how they play off one another, and how they are a unified whole. Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this is where we begin to get into some of the differences because Jesus fulfills all the promises and all the covenants of the Old Testament. Paul says all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so we're under now a new covenant which Jesus establishes and, and, and the terms of the covenant are different. It's not just that the covenant is now open to anybody who wants to join it. Um, because actually that was true in the Old Testament as well. You could convert to Judaism in the Old Testament and be part of the people of God. The key difference now is that the terms on our end are changed. Right? God gave the Israelites the promised land. That's been fulfilled. That covenant is done. 
Now the promised land is God's kingdom, which includes the whole of creation. But the real thing that changes everything is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's why things seem so different in the New Testament. In Luke's Gospel, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he tells the Pharisees, this is your hour in the power of darkness. There is a real sense in the Gospels, in the Bible as a whole, that before the crucifixion, the world was ruled by evil. And this is where we get into some shaky ground because the Bible depicts Satan in a few different ways. But the best way to understand biblically is Satan is this quasi-personal force. Not an individual, not a person in and of himself. A quasi-personal force. In fact, a better translation would not be Satan, but the Satan. Referring not to a name, but to like a descriptive, right? Uh, it's not quite a person, but there is a sort of odd personal aspect to it. But it is this, it is this spiritual force of wickedness that has power over the world. So we go back to our understanding of idolatry as the root of all sin, right? All sin is ultimately idolatry. God originally gave humans authority over creation as his representatives in the world. And when we took our worship and directed it away from God and towards created things, we gave our power over to those things that we worshipped. And they enslaved us. And there is a sense that during the, the, the millennia before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that most people were in some sense powerless to resist evil. That the world was very much a darker, crueler, and more brutal place. And that Jesus on the cross is not just atoning for our sins, but in some way is drawing all that evil and wickedness to him so he can defeat it in one spot. And his death breaks the power of darkness over the world. It frees all humanity from that enslavement to evil. In other words, it literally changes the rules of the game. And so one reason why it seems as though things are different in the New Testament is that it, they are different. God can interact with us differently. We are able to approach God more readily. God is doing a new thing, but the character and the will of God remain the same and perhaps most importantly, the morality that God expects his people to uphold remains the same. If you go back and pay attention 
when you read the book of Deuteronomy, you will see in those laws a deep, deep level of compassion and grace. The laws that God lays down in Deuteronomy are formulated to ensure that the poor are cared for, to, to highlight compassion and mercy and justice above all else. A good example is the, the year of Jubilee, that every seven years, God's people are to cancel all outstanding debts, period. Doesn't matter how big they are. Doesn't matter why the debt was taken out. If it exists, it is wiped out every seven years. Because compassion and mercy and justice take precedence over economic concerns. You know, they're forbidden to charge interest. Same deal. Compassion and mercy and justice take precedence over economic concerns. There are concessions in those laws to the realities of the way people lived at the time. But they are always driving God's people to be holier, to be more compassionate, more merciful, and more just. So we have to take the Old Testament laws seriously. We don't need to worry about the purification rituals or the sacrifices, but we certainly have to look at the moral laws and take a good hard look at them and figure out which of those and how they might still apply to us today. Because they matter. They absolutely matter. God is the same then as now. And if you pay attention as you read through the Bible, you will see. You will see God's mercy and grace. And there are times when God does things that seem brutal. But again, if you pay close attention, you might see them in a different light. Remember at all times that, that <clears throat> when God is dealing with his people and their holiness, the stakes are high. These are the people through whom he intends to save the world. They have to be holy and perfect. There are also times when God commands things that seem horrible, and, and again, we have to think about why that is. And we need to understand that sometimes people were evil, and sometimes entire groups of people were evil. But we also have to understand that most of the, these history books are being written not from the point of view of recording events as they actually happened, but recording stories. I've already been over in this podcast how the book of Joshua is full of hyperbole and exaggeration, and how God didn't even command the destruction of the Canaanites. He commanded the separation. He commanded them to be driven out of the promised land, and frankly, they had it coming. They were a, a profoundly evil society. I've got no problem with that. They were cooking their infants alive in, in sacrifice to their gods, and yet God didn't order their destruction. God ordered them to be driven out. What gets, what gets highlighted as wrath and anger is justice and righteousness and a concern for making things right. And I suspect, quite frankly, that God still works that way in the world. We're just less inclined to pay attention to it. I suspect that God does still work in the world to, to bring about justice. And maybe one of the key differences is that now he expects us to be greater partners in that work than he did before. Remember, 
In the Old Testament, he's working through one people group in one place. But now, God's people are numbering in the billions. We're the largest religion on earth. We are in every country, on every continent. God still demands justice and righteousness in the world. But now he asks us to be the ones who bring it about. And in all honesty, we can do that in ways that are more gentle, precisely because the world has been made a more gentle place. You will notice, if you ever study ancient history, if you read ancient books, that the things God tells his people to do are significantly more restrained than what the people around them were doing. The way that they punish evildoers, the way that they treat defeated enemies, the way they handle prisoners of war and slaves, it's always more gentle and more compassionate than the people around them. God works with us, but he meets us where we are. And that includes on the societal level. God met the people where they were, gave them laws that restrained them from being as cruel and brutal and evil as the people around them, but which today to us still seem quite brutal. But that's not evidence that God is more wrathful then than he is now. It's evidence actually that God's plan is working because the world as a whole is now a more gentle, loving, compassionate place. Slavery is a great example. Before William Wilberforce had slavery abolished in England, nobody in the world, nobody considered abolishing slavery. It was such a vital part of every nation's economy that no one ever gave it a second thought to suggest to someone before Wilberforce's time, including in biblical times, uh, that we should give up our slaves and, and not have slavery would be a lot like me telling you all, well, we should all just get rid of our cars and walk everywhere. You would never consider it. Wilberforce's faith motivated him to champion the end of slavery. Because God is still at work in the world. God has been working to make the world a better place from day one, but he meets us where we are at. So if anything, the, the brutality and the violence in the Old Testament is not an indicator of God being wrathful and angry. It is an indicator of just how far we had fallen and just how far we have come. And we're not done yet. God meets us where we're at. He works with us. And he demands improvement. He demands constant working towards more holiness, right? Sanctification is the word we Methodists like to use. But God is constantly calling us to be more and more holy. And what you see in the Old Testament is a reflection of that. What you see in the world around you today is evidence that, that the Christian church is not just making ourselves more holy, more gentle, more compassionate, but the whole world is. Remember, the very idea of human rights, that's Christian in origin. It does not exist outside the church until very recently when people have tried to separate it from its religious origins. But, but we're the ones who introduced that concept to the world. The idea that we should build hospitals to treat sick people, even if they are of no economic value to us, that's Christian in origin. We introduced that concept to the world. 
the idea that we should provide public education. That's from us too. The world is a better place now because God works through his people. And we don't have to look that far back in our own history to see how we still have come a long way in the past century in terms of our compassion and gentleness towards each other. God always meets us where we're at. He uses the tool at his disposal. And he judges us, I think, honestly. He judges us based on how well we improve. So if you and I were to try and go back and marry you know, six or seven wives, I don't think God would be okay with that. The challenge for us is not in, not in figuring out what to do with the Old Testament on, as a whole. It's figuring out how do we take the law which God gave to his people then and figure out which parts of it we can consider unchanging. And the New Testament gives us some clues in there because there are some things that even the Apostle Paul says quite clearly, hey, these don't change for anybody, um, right? Paul does away with kosher laws. He does away with circumcision, but he upholds all of the moral laws and says, actually, these matter for God's people. They're put in place for a reason. In other words, the standards for how we treat other people, how we express ourselves, those actually have changed a little bit. Really, there are only only like three areas where the Bible is consistent and there is no change. Money, sex, and power. And the reason is that those three things have a power over us that very few other sins do. The ethics of God's people with relation to money, sex, and power have not changed since Old Testament times. They're the same in the Old Testament. They're the same in the New Testament. What has changed is our treatment of people who are sinners. We are no longer under the Old Covenant that required us to embrace rigid purity. We can instead offer grace. And if you pay attention, by the way, when you go back and read in the Old Testament, there is grace involved. But it doesn't always take the form that we might understand it. One thing to bear in mind as well is that ancient societies were not individualistic in the way ours is. They were communal. If you lived in ancient Israel, your sin didn't just stain you. Your sin was actually brought, would actually bring guilt on the whole community. So again, things about how we approach these subjects have changed, but the way that God approaches them really hasn't. And the terms of the covenant reflect that. God is unchanging. We are not. That's a lot to, to take in, and, and really, I could probably spend months actually diving deep into that and why it matters. But I want to instead recommend you do this. Read the parts of the Old Testament. Well, we finished reading the one year Bible first, but, but going forward, know that you cannot understand who Jesus is or what he did if you don't understand the Old Testament. You can't understand Paul's letters if you don't understand the Old Testament. Every word he says about God's righteousness and faithfulness is tied into the idea of God's covenant with his people, and you need to know the Old Testament to know that. 
Jesus cannot be separated from the Old Testament. You will not understand what Jesus did or who he was if you don't understand the Old Testament. It's part of him. In particular, you need to understand Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. You need to understand and read a lot um, Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, Daniel chapter 7 and 9. Those are big ones because there's, a, there's a, an image in there that talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and that gets repeated in the New Testament, and people have interpreted that as like one of the signs of the rapture, with Jesus coming down from the clouds to, to come and meet us. But the reality is, if you pay attention to the reference from the book of Daniel, it's not Jesus coming down from the clouds to meet us. It is Jesus rising up on the clouds to meet the Father. In other words, that whole image of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, it's already happened it happened in the ascension. So if you don't read the Old Testament, you miss those things. So Daniel 7 and 9, all of the Psalms, the Psalms shaped Jesus' thought and prayer life. They shaped Paul. You have to read those books. Ezekiel is another one. You have to read those books to understand. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah 40 to 55, Daniel 7 and 9, and the Psalms. But you have to go beyond the Old Testament too. You need to read the Apocrypha. And I say that and people cringe because they think that's just for the Catholics. But here's the thing. Jesus read the Apocrypha. All the apostles read the Apocrypha. Paul read the Apocrypha. And they all reference it all the time. If they don't quote it outright, you can see how it shapes their thinking because it was in their Bible. Not as separate books, not set apart, but part of their scriptures. They read them, they memorized them. These books belong with them. And the thing is, it's not about these books containing like some new revelation that we need to hear. But they all date to... The, the century or two before the life of Jesus. So they reflect Jewish beliefs of Jesus' time, which means reading them gives you a whole new understanding of the New Testament. So we need to read them. They were only rejected from the Bible actually in the 1800s. Up until the 1800s, people don't realize this, up until the 1800s, even Protestant Bibles included those books. Um, I'm, not enough, I'm not up to date, I'm a history enough to know why they were taken out in the 1800s, but I don't think there was any real good reason to do it. They're very important because, if nothing else, they show you the religious framework that Jesus and the apostles lived in. And they help you understand how they saw themselves, how they saw the Romans, how they understood God to be at work in the world, all of that. Now, you don't have to read the whole thing, because there are several books in it, but you do need to read at least First and Second Maccabees. You need to read The Wisdom of Solomon. And you probably need to read uh, Sirach, or Ben Sirach. It's also called Ecclesiasticus in some Bibles. Those four books, if you read them a couple of times, you'll begin to see their echoes throughout the New Testament because Jesus was very clearly deeply influenced by all of them. 
So was Paul. You will see how their thoughts were shaped by them. And so reading those books then helps you understand a lot of what's going on. So you need to read the Old Testament and you need to read the Apocrypha as well because those things were all scripture to Jesus and the apostles. My friends, I hope this was helpful. I hope it at least gives you a starting point to understand why the Old Testament matters and why we need to read it. As always, you can send in your questions to me at forest.divinity at asburycc.org or you can just tell me your question in person. I'll see you on Sunday.